If you could make the soundtrack to your life a mixtape, what songs would you choose? Welcome to Almost a Mirror, a podcast about Australian music from the late 1970s and 80s, where the post-punk world of the Crystal Ballroom collides with the pop icons of Countdown. Come with me, Kirsten Krauth, on a personal journey through music and memory, where each episode is sparked by a song. Hi, it's Kirsten here. I was sad to find out about Chris Bailey's death today. A couple of months ago, I interviewed him for the Saints podcast episode. The interview was quite funny because I sent him a Zoom link and it was later at night for me. It was early morning for him. I think he's probably a night person and I'm probably a morning person. So I'd sent him an invitation to join the meeting and he didn't seem to show up. So I had eventually just gone to bed to have a bit of a lie down. And I got up about 15 minutes later and he was in the waiting room. So it was quite a funny way to start. And he was so wonderful and warm. And we talked for about an hour and a half. And I thought it might be a lovely idea to release the full interview. He made me laugh and He was very sweet and and charming. He was also deliciously provocative, as you'll see soon. I'll miss him and and his contribution to music. Thanks. Bye. Well, miracle of modern technology. What? (laughs) I'm a little challenged at the moment. I'm not at home. I I have a a dodgy old laptop that I work on. Yeah. Uh, And I've only recently put Zoom into it. In fact, this is only the second time I've actually used Zoom. So so I'm very excited. All through the plague, I've kind of resisted it because I've watched a bit of telly. And, of course, every man and his dog is Zooming. And um, (laughs) I thought, that's just not for me. I'm not doing that. My girlfriend works in the computer world quite a high level and of course her life is these machines and whatever the professional variation of zoom is and she's on it all the friggin time and so i just thought no Any, anyways i'll start winching about me good evening so <laughs> a cup of tea for me and a gin and tonic for you yeah something like that although yeah. you said you might have a gin and tonic anyway in former times, I perhaps might have, but <laughs> in deference to my uh, <laughs> advancing years, I, I might just um, stick with a cup of tea. The and the world yeah. isn't actually gagging for my prose, so we can probably... Well, it could pass. be. We, well, <laughs> Maybe I just, am. <laughs> let, let's just skip over that for the moment. I mean, Unless you want to read it, you could like read out your prose, be quite nice. I'll leave that to others and I'll just stick with what I do best, which is being a rock and roll singer right. for the moment. So it's Saturday morning. I'm not in any hurry. Well, All right, good. So, I mean, basically the podcast is based on a book that I wrote last year, a novel. 
Yes, um, yeah. um, I've checked sort of all of that. Out, oh, okay, good. Um, you've, you've to to make sure that out. you're not. <laughs> okay. Well, no, no, it, it's of interest. To, to, um, yeah, it's a shame you're like, in Amsterdam. You make, you, you make me sound like a, a pervert on the other side <laughs> of the no, world. Yes, what... I've been checking you out. No, uh, but everyone um, should. <laughs> Okay. Yes, indeed. In fact, yeah. actually, yesterday at some point, you realise I live on the other side of the world. Yeah. But I was reading something you were writing about the crystal ballroom, and and even though I'm not a Melbourneian, well, a I'm very fond of Melbourne, and in fact, if if ever I was allowed to live in Oz again, Melbourne would probably be the city I would choose to live in for a myriad of reasons, and the crystal ballroom is somewhere that I actually have quite a lot to fond and, <laughs> and it's called strong memories of. <laughs> what are the strong memories? <laughs> well, it used to be accommodation for a while and I didn't stay there often, but Melbourne to me has this magical, it, just in, in the sort of the lexicon of my own personal life, I, I always thought Melbourne was really far away, given that my perspective of Australia is Brisbane. So obviously it's very far away. So I always thought Melbourne was very exotic and exciting. And the thing I really loved about Melbourne and still do to a certain extent is that it, it was very cross-disciplined, as in writers would mix with, builders would mix with, lawyers would mix with you know perverts it was it was all a nice mishmash whereas i didn't find that in brisbane or sydney where you tended to stick to your class or whatever your prescribed profession was i'm not sure this might be a glossy fantasy of mine but that's the kind of image i have of melbourne and it usually is my experience whenever I go to Australia that when I'm in Melbourne, I tend to mix with a more broad segment of the population, whereas in Sydney, I tend to stick to the rock and roll people I know. And in Brisbane, I've got no fucking clue. Um, <laughs> Brisbane is, is a beautiful subtropical paradise filled with odd folk. Uh, in my mind's eye, Brisbane from my youth is a black and white American art film, which it, you know, it obviously isn't, but I think of uh, Brisbane as sort of Texas or something. Oh, why? But the, why? The, that's, that's just my, my, my memory of it, of my teenage years feel like that. <clears throat> I mean, it's not true. I think that's just how people phrase different phases of their lives. And to me, Brisbane is very much a black and white movie. And the reality is whenever I go back, it's a very colourful subtropical paradise covered in cement and morons. It's funny, reality and memory. What's the American connection? Like why an American black and white movie? The, the streets, I think. That big streets. I, I lived quite far from the town of, of Brisbane, 
where I spent my time was on the other side of a very big highway, basically. <clears throat> so therefore, even though Brisbane was quite little and rural, I had the notion that I had to cross freeways and highways to get places. That it was, you know, just an illusion, I'm sure, but that's what my brain has done to the memory. And when I go there, the highways aren't quite so big as they are in my memory, but they're still there. Yeah. And they still kind of delineate this is a posh area, this is somewhere that you shouldn't go, you shouldn't cross this freeway. And it's quite funny, I've never thought about this before, but I guess the whole other side of the tracks thing, because funny enough, there wasn't a railway that went as far as where I lived. And even though I did work for Queensland Railways in my youth, so railway tracks figure loom large in my brain. I used to lay them and that was bloody hard, I have to admit. Oh, when was that? Um, God, no, sometime in the 70s. Yeah. I, I went through a slew of occupations. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, like most folk, to pay the rent. But being a fettler's mate on the railways was not a career for me, I'm afraid. This young lady was not for the railways. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, well, let's stay there. Well, that's interesting. So you had all these freeways, but you didn't feel like you were going to ever be on one. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, crossing them was problematic, let's say. Mm. And if that's a metaphor for class, then so be it. Does that talk maybe more about the sort of landscape of the mid-70s, early 70s in Brisbane? Like, what was it like being at high school? I loved it. And once again, I look back, obviously, with rose-coloured glasses. Fortunately, because my parents separated, I was able to leave high school quite young, which, in fact, I did, because the whole kind of domestic discipline thing broke down, and I was pretty much able to do whatever I wanted, kind of. So my academic achievements were quite paltry, as in I, I left school at 14. Once again, at the time, I'm sure I hated it, but looking back, there were lots of parties, mainly because there was a university in Brisbane that was quite active. You must remember that there was a war on in Vietnam, so... Therefore, there was a very motivated political left of the middle class who threw great parties, which if you were a working class lad with Chairman Mao badge and leftist leanings, you could drink awfully posh booze and get drunk in awfully posh houses whilst waiting for the revolution. The small segments of Brisbane that I managed to kind of find. It was, it was great. Lots of middle-class parties for young working-class blokes. Jolly good fun. So you were playing music before you left school? No, we were playing amongst ourselves. I'd met Edmund, at, God, in year nine, so that's quite young. 
And I met Iva shortly after that, and then we became buddies. And then inevitably, apart from girls or each other, young men have quite limited interests when we weren't beekeepers, not likely to become... Though Eddie was quite sportive, sportive. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. I think he played basketball or something. Oh. I, I seem to recall. But then that kind of stopped not long after he met me. Not terribly sportive. What attracted us to each other was <clears throat> rebellion, long hair, and the associated thing at that time was obviously an interest in music. It wasn't hard to stand out in in Brisbane in those days, as they say. Sounds like, yeah, you didn't have to do anything, really. Not a great deal. I, I don't recall it being a massive effort. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd always liked music. Um, Someone mentioned the, the, that you used to wear badges and they thought you were amazing because of that. You were really cool because you wore badges. If I had the ability to wear badges... I would find it quite amazing myself. I mean, I'd be a great naturist. <laughs> I am going to wear badges, God damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry for that. I do have now have an image of me wearing badges. <laughs> um, well, someone else certainly does. <laughs> yes, indeed they do. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'm confused in my mind whether they're the little cute furry ones or the big black and white things. And I think, sadly <laughs> for me, badges are the big black and white things. That's very nice. Mm, my neighbour oh. was offering me a drink. Um, ah, there uh, you go. Yes, yes, very nice. So actually off the subject of me and badges, <laughs> yes, I was quite fond of wearing badges in my youth. My sister was quite politically active and so I had a uh what's that woman's badge, you know, with the clenched fist in the, the symbol for woman. So I was obviously a rabid feminist lesbian when I was a teenager. <laughs> um I'm impressed. So am I in hindsight, but let's not dwell too much on that. Well, it is a good way to meet women, having a badge. Now, um... Do you know, I actually discovered that to be truth. It, it is used true. To annoy, it used to really annoy me. Blokes who I knew who were like dodgy bastards who just wanted a shag, pretending to be feminist just to get girls. Whereas I, the true, the true radical, <laughs> had a lousy reputation at... Um, attracting the attention of, of girls. Yeah, and you were a real feminist, right? Yeah, yeah. right on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so so bloody annoying. But then that, that life can be cruel. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure and then I joined. Okay. Then I joined a rock band and never got groupies. Dreadful. Oh, that's... Dreadful state. I don't believe that one. It's, it's absolutely true. How can that be possible? I... I I've often asked myself the same question. <laughs> Maybe you just didn't recognise I mean, them. in the early days, I was told that by, the groupies were for roadies. And in the pecking order, because I wasn't a drummer, 
I had to stand in line. No, I think um, you, you you would have always been at the start of the line, surely. In the no, after that, you, no, you, uh, you could ask my contemporaries. The Saints have always had a really bad track record with groupies. And I actually think that is a very good thing. However... <laughs> Probably not at the time. <laughs> As a rock singer, it's probably not the sort of thing I should broadcast. However, it's true. Oh, but it's really interesting. Um, yeah, in a sad sort of way. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't believe it. Um, well, it, it is true, but um, okay. Well, maybe we can. And, and I mean, later. I don't, I don't, I don't mind. I mean, I, I've, I've met some very, I've met many. That sounds bragging i have met a sufficient number of rather strong and lovely females throughout my life for it not to be a major issue in my dotage except just then when i was thinking about it <laughs> anyway enough maybe of this. everyone must have been scared of you guys or something i am aware of that and it started quite early and it, it always bemused me because to take the cliche, I am a lover, not a fighter, it, with the exception possibly of either. But what's a good word to describe? Wusses, a big bunch of wusses. The, the, the saints weren't terribly machismo, but managed to be scary and I, I don't understand that I've never understood it in fact well, you're seen as punk wusses I don't understand that expression I mean a punk wuss is something quite despicable really I mean the two words when put in combination <laughs> don't really conjure up an image of something that is scary it conjures up yeah. Steve Bashimi to me. Maybe you were scary because you were just trying to be yourself rather than sort of perform it in a way. It, it's very flattering and I will take it as a compliment or a badge of honour. But but the intention, I don't think, uh, well, certainly not from me, the intention was never to scare someone. And I think that's quite cruel. You shouldn't do that. Uh, but I've been told to my face that I was scary and I just find that weird. So, you, so I, you didn't feel that? Because someone was saying that they went to a gig when you were really young and you got punched in the nose or something at the end of it. So you didn't feel as a um, band you had to project some sort of sense that you could deal with any situation, you know? Not consciously. There were times, not so much in Oz, and there are times in social situations where violence erupts, of course. And I have been close to scenes of riot all over the world caused by rock and roll. If you're talking about the early days, I don't recall there be, being that much violence. But then that could just be me not remembering it. It was more kind of that very early when you were playing in halls and things like that. Um, I mean, uh, those those times are kind of rosy to me. Okay, I I tell a lie. There there was one evening where there was a fight with a biker group. I suppose that was fairly violent. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess it depends from where you're standing. Is it arrogant if I say I kind of felt a little bit above all that? If I spent quite a lot of time in the audience as a performer. So I think I got the experience from both sides. Maybe I just was like high on the adrenaline of the music. So I didn't really notice or the uh, violence or the threat of violence was just part of the electricity. I, I, I really do know. Yeah, that makes sense, I think. Mm. You know, yeah, if, it, it, if you were it, the one on stage compared to, you know, someone watching it, it'd be different. It may well have been more intimidating to be not plugged in, so to speak. Mm. Um, I shall ponder that as the day progresses. <laughs> okay, lovely. Are you happy to talk about I'm Stranded, the song? Not much to say, really. It's three chords and you're out of there, as someone once described it to me. <laughs> you're out of there. Three chords and a cloud of dust and then you're gone. It's part of that very early developmental saints. They, I haven't heard it for a while, but when I occasionally hear it, I think it has its charms. It's like anything you do. It, it's an oral photograph to me of a particular time and place that whilst it's still very strong in my memory, sadly, it's gone. It doesn't exist for me anymore, except as a memory. And to quote Johnny Thunders, you can't put your arms around a memory. Sadly for me, that's all I can really say about any old work, it's it's gone. Mm. <laughs> so what are its charms, uh-huh. though? Uh, to me, mm. um, the memory of Ed and Ivor and um, I think Kim, I suppose, was deserving of some charm or some part of this memory. The, the making of it, the five-minute versions of it out in the cow sheds, because we used to rehearse sometimes at a farm that I think we got through some rich bloke that one of my sisters knew. Very rustic, actually. In fact, that was probably my favourite times of the early years, was just us with lots of alcohol rehearsing in, in a cow farm. Wow. Oh, um, that's brilliant. It, it was. It, it was yeah. actually a, a very lucky thing that we had access to that. And and once again, I've often been asked about the sound and how it evolved. And there are dull reasons for dull explanations. But there's something about rock and roll and amplification in the wrong place. And that's, I think, how we sort of stumbled into sounding the way we did, because the intention may well have been to be an R&B band when we started out. And I thought we were an okay R&B band. 
but it started to get louder and louder and louder. And then solid state amplification briefly became the wall of noise that, that we were. I mean, as a three piece, we made an awful lot of noise. We were able to have masses of volume and quite primitive amplification. It's easy to, to understand why we sounded the way we did. We were very lucky for a brief period in the time. Whilst we may have been trying to emulate others, found a kind of a, an original little, a little area that we could call our own. Because I, I think it's true of subsequent work of me, of mine, which sound nothing like Stranded, but there's a thread that continues on that is like Stranded. And even Ed, in his most, I want to be into jazz and I want to try different musics and play with the boundaries of music, even in his most esoteric I don't know, stubbornness to tune up and his long, boring songs. Even that, there's a thread that goes, and I can see it. It's still kind of there, even though it, it doesn't sound anything like it. It's the same intention and the same attitude. But very, very interesting. So why, why did you say that was sort of your favourite time playing out in the cow bales or whatever? Because it's early on a Saturday morning and I'm sober. <laughs> I've got no idea why I said that. It, it was just a pleasant memory. I enjoyed rehearsing in my bedroom. I enjoyed rehearsing in town halls. I really like that. And f- I mean, funnily enough, I'm quite famous for hating rehearsals and not going to rehearsals because I hate rehearsing. I just quite like doing stuff. So you like to just get up on stage and do it. Is that what you mean? No, I'm not quite that free-range radical. (laughs) I think you can over-egg things. And and also I just hate rock band rehearsal spaces, generally speaking. But then playing music in a rustic environment is very pleasant. Playing music in certain halls or churches when you got up on stage and started playing at what point did you mm-hmm. think oh this is what i want to do and also yeah we are doing something totally unique probably the very first time i did it actually i have a quite strong memory of going to a party funny enough in a church hall and there was a band playing and obviously they weren't that entertaining but they were nice blokes because they let us go up and Ed was there and Ivor was there I was there, it must have been someone else but I can't remember who it could have been or maybe it was just the three of us so we we actually <clears throat> without rehearsing just went up and played a couple of 12 bars and it, in my mind's eye, that's when it clicked for me that, ah, this, I can do this thing. Because as, as a, uh, a vacuous youth, I had no real ambition to be anything. Because in the 70s, in, 
it was almost possible to live on the dole. And even though I wasn't on the dole, because I've got a moral thing about that, you could get by without too much money in Brisbane in the 70s. Hitchhiking was still a viable option. And you could bum drinks. It wasn't quite the economic times we live in now. So I, I had no ambition, no uh, formal training to be anything. And I, I also don't think I wanted to be a pop star, really. But once I'd been on stage, <clears throat> this whole thing just became very natural. And w without really thinking about it, uh, when I look back, we were very disciplined. We rehearsed every week. All we talked about was friggin' music. All we did was music. And so for several years, it was just music. That was all there was, really. Not bad. So hmm. in such an environment where it wasn't thought great to stand out, what gave you the courage to not conform? I could jocularly say Bundaberg rum, but that would not be true. <clears throat> Don't know. My parents, the DNA, a desire to confront injustice. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Can I speak for my peers? Did we want to stand out? I don't know. I guess a rock band wants attention. Melding that down to the personal level. <clears throat> Did I want to change the world? Didn't spend that much time doing good work. So don't know. Don't but, know the answer you, to that question. Did you post your single out or was that it? <clears throat> that was just necessity being the mother of invention. One of the functions of a record label, I had a fictitious character called Ron, the devious manager. I am, I am not a good businessman. I was never really a great manager, but it was a cartoon character that existed in my own mind. The fact that we thought that by posting out a few copies of a record, we would attract interest was very naive. But in actual fact, it worked. Well, that's the amazing part. Because, because if, if all, if, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If all that English hysteria hadn't have happened, a major record label wouldn't have bothered. We'd already been rejected by the Australian offices of most major labels. I can't remember who we sent stuff to, but I'm sure it was everybody. And it was just that UK reaction that, uh, that started the ball rolling. And, and so in hindsight, that if, if it were for nothing else, that is a fairly remarkable story. I guess that happens a couple of times a year to folk. But to like a scruffy young rock band, it doesn't happen that often. No, but it had never happened to a band in Brisbane, right? I guess all of that historical stuff, yes, is true. 
I, I find this really weird. I don't live in Brisbane, obviously, and I'm not an ambassador for the place. <clears throat> I do have fond memories of it. I'm not slagging it off. I'm not praising it overly. It's a city. It's got its pros and cons. But one weird thing, which I find flabbergasting, is some blokes a couple of years back raised government money, taxpayer money, to do a friggin' painting of the saints to put up on a wall as a mural in Brisbane. I mean, how pathetic is that? I mean, it's just, bleh. I mean, it, it contradicts every, anything that I ever thought the saints had anything to do with. But there you go. All these years later, there's a government-funded bit of plastic graffiti. I'm stranded. Yeah, hey. <laughs> I mean, fuck me. <laughs> How embarrassing. I don't live there. I don't find it embarrassing. I don't have to think about it. Yeah. I think it's a waste of taxpayer money. I've seen a photograph of it, and it doesn't look very good. And, and it's weird. If graffiti is meant to be some kind of protest or uh, statements about the world in which we live, I find government-funded graffiti a little bit odd as a concept. But to, to think that somebody went out of their way to fill in the forms to get funding to, to do a mural of the saints and put it up on a wall and it wasn't cheap that that's what's wrong with maybe the whole brisbane saints thing I, why is it after all of these years you sort of uh, embraced whereas 40 years ago who gave a shit I find something very strange about that. Over the years, I've gone to Brisbane and I think the saints in their early years and through all the different incarnations have genuinely touched people and there's been a connection. And I'm very proud of that and I, I like that. But I don't think any of it deserved a government-sponsored mural. I'm sorry. So apparently there's a mural, a mural, a mural of you two or uh, the saints in Bondi Junction somewhere. I was talking to someone. I, I have not seen, I have not seen that mural. Yeah. So um, was... I've spent a fair amount of time at Bondi and Bondi Junction. Mm. So that doesn't surprise me. An organic mural I could certainly embrace. <laughs> Because I think many years ago, Ivor did a mural, which was still in London in, in, in the late 90s or early thousands. It managed to survive that long. And I remember Ivor doing it. It was just a piece of graffiti somewhere in Camden. I don't think it's there anymore, but it, it lasted a very long time. So what was it like to get those initial reviews from the UK out of nowhere? Terrific. It's really, really terrific. From, yeah, the contact from EMI. It, it was terrific. It was a terrific time. <clears throat> You've got to remember, it, it was telexes and telefaxes and telegrams. It was super. It was very enjoyable. 
and in even in hindsight it seems quite remarkable what made it sort of spectacularly ordinary and dull was that it seemed to, to take quite a long time even though it happened very quickly because you know brisbane's hot it, things happen slowly um i've got a telegram from this what was i getting a telegram for the queen or something here's, here's your record contract come to london have a jolly good time where did you get the telegram did it go to someone's parents or something well, obviously, we had an address. I think it was Ed's mum and dad. <laughs> By that stage, I think Ivor and I were living away from home, being reckless, abandoned youth, uh, whereas Eddie still had the contact with Ma and Pa. So it was more solid. And were you in Petrie Terrace then? If not Petrie Terrace, we were certainly somewhere... On the way to it, Petri Terrace seemed to be the pinnacle of our domestic arrangements in those days. Because I think I started living there first. My sister Mary was there first. It was her house. Oh, was it? And then I... Okay. uh, Yeah, yeah. Then I moved in. And then she and her husband, boyfriend, boyfriend, I think, yes, moved out. (laughs) <laughs> was that before or after the band started playing there? <laughs> I don't know. There, there must have been a hint of youth, a hint of teenage spirit on the way. Because I've, uh, I think, moved in next. And then all sorts of folk moved in. Um, <laughs> and it got quite smelly. And I moved out. Oh, did you? <laughs> and I think... Ivor still, Iver still lived there uh, f- for a while. Uh, he was very successful with young women, so there was a plethora of young women. Um, <clears throat> and, and yes, and so it became a little bit more social. And then when we started playing there, it became a bit of a, uh, a hangout, I think is the expression I was looking for. And what was it like to play there? Why did you decide to do that? It's easy, I guess. I mean, we rehearsed there. And let's not get too overexcited. It it wasn't really a gig. It was a rehearsal room full of people. But but very exciting nonetheless. Yeah, more exciting maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, there wasn't a stage. Everyone was on the same level. Mm. Except it felt quite professional and we did sets and everyone would drink and chats and then the band would play and people would go bonkers. I, yeah, perfect. That's If you're a teenager, were we teenagers? Yes, we were teenagers. How scary. And it's, how did it's it what feel te- when you were there and watching people, you were playing and people were going bonkers? It just felt very natural. This is what you do. This is the order of things. This is what Homo sapiens do for fun. (laughs) And when you got to Sydney, Mm -hmm. how did it feel to be coming out of Brisbane and arriving there and playing there and going to the UK and, you know, it all happened so quickly. Well, well, actually, Sydney, it, it was kind of interesting. We had this record contract and Ivor and I were living in a, 
condemned building <laughs> that I think management got to, so we could rehearse in it, except it was a shithole that me and Iva decided to live in because we had no money. So they, um, they gave you a contract and they got you to come to Sydney and they didn't give you accommodation. I don't know if that was the intention because <clears throat> I remember Ed lived somewhere quite nice. I, I don't know why Ivor and I decided to, to live in this shithole. Maybe it's because we could spend rent money on drink. <laughs> I, I really don't remember, but it was great because we were young and it didn't really matter who, who cared. And it was our little badge of honour, I suppose. So that was terrific. And starting to play professional gigs was really interesting. We didn't make that many chums. Um, How come? In fact, I, I don't know. Bad table manners, not the correct speech. It's still true, actually. There's a kind of deference that exists in the pop world that if you're the talent, there's something precious about you or there's something precious about this whole process. And I, I have a big respect for artists and I do think music is one of the arts that moves people and it's very important. But let's not get too carried away with uh, the seriousness here. Just relax. It's just music, for God's sake. And so that preciousness or the refusal to accept preciousness I guess is what I'm trying to describe always seems to rub people up the wrong way and the saints always seem to do that no, no matter who's been in the band I mean as a collective that's always seemed to have been I think pop musicians are not unlike rock musicians or whatever sub category the saints were meant to be uh, I, I do think people take themselves a little bit too seriously. We are you living were on top of the pops <laughs> mm -hmm. with you and Ed. I just love that whole performance because you know it's a bit surly, you're, but you're, it's almost impossible for you to take it seriously. Well, it, it, if you've ever been to a program like Top of the Pops, it is actually very hard to take it seriously. Yeah, because it, it, it's fake. And I mean, some people do obviously have the talent to make fake okay. <laughs> ABBA obviously mimed their way through the world. It doesn't lessen the fact that their music is very powerful and has lasted for decades. Actually, they're, they're good singers and they've got quite good tunes, but they seem to be able to lip sync okay. I can't. You just and get yourself to do it in that clip. But Ed couldn't, uh, couldn't either. It, well, that was actually a sort of a sulky statement, which also is daft as, well, why don't you just try a little bit harder and do it properly? One, one can argue either way, I suppose. We actually agreed to go on the program. So why didn't we play by those that, you know, sensibility? You're there to fake your single so it sells more. So you make more money, yada, yada, yada. Okay, we were aware that that's the reality. So what do we do? We go and sulk. And, and terrific. In hindsight, I think that's actually quite a good thing to do.
I do. At the time, I'm not sure that it was quite so conscious. However, still, it's produced an interesting bit of television. Yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless. <laughs> Very entertaining. Um, actually, there's a clip that I, I've seen on YouTube, <clears throat> which I'd totally forgotten, which is at some point in the 80s, I was doing a tour in Oz and it, it just conspired. It was just one of those weird quirks where at the last minute I didn't have a bass player. And I think I'd already spent some time with, with Tracy. He, he used to play with the birthday party. Was... One of my favorite, 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 favorite bandmates of all time. I think I toured with him for about six months. And it, it was glorious, Absol absolutely glorious. I was also very fond of vodka. Somehow, but, but by accident, this, this tour we were doing started off in Perth, of all places. And we were staying with one of the roadies' sisters, whose boyfriend slash husband was a, a Russian oil worker who worked on oil rigs somewhere out in the West. And he came home one time to find a rock band in his house. And he was, he was a lovely bloke and very hospitable. He somehow got Tracy and me playing chess with him in these massive chess tournaments that involved the game of chess, obviously, but it mainly in, involved vodka like lots and lots of vodka. At that stage, I wasn't particularly a vodka drinker, but rapidly became one, as indeed did Tracy, which I'm not really sure if that contributed to his early demise. I certainly hope not, oh, because we spent an awful lot of time drinking vodka and playing chess. But a gorgeous, gorgeous bloke. And I'm so glad that I was never a big one for making promotional film clips still hate it to this day but there's one that Tracy's in which I'm very glad of because I think it captures a side of him because he had a quite infectious smile um, yeah I've been watching that see I didn't know when I started that Tracy had a, had a connection with the Saints is. so that's just really yeah. amazing someone sent me a clip of him playing with you on Hey, hey, it's Saturday. Yeah, yeah. That smile thing, he's so cheeky. I mean, I just think he's absolutely, you know, gorgeous. But he's just got yeah. a really cheeky smile and it's really wonderful to watch him. It, yeah, it was wonderful to be around him. Lots of people have said detrimental things about Tracy and I don't want to, you know, over-eulogise him. But and that smile was infectious and his character was infectious in um, a very positive way he just lit up a space some people have that gift and when you're around it it is actually very pleasant to be around yeah uh, but i was actually thinking of another clip i guess it's the benefits of the worldwide wacky web it must have been after the tracy thing Another time I, I was absent a bass player. I got Ed in on the bass for a tour. 
because I think it was a time where he didn't have much cash and was offering him a quite good salary for coming back to the fold. I also had the notion that maybe it would be an interesting entree to us working together again, which didn't happen. But anyway, there's a, a wonderful clip on Countdown, I think it is, of us playing a song and Ed looking very not interested to be on Countdown. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's quite sweet in hindsight. Uh, a few people I spoke to said that they really connected to you through literature, like through reading and writing and yeah. that you always had books. You were always reading books and they felt like they had someone to talk to because they were reading books. Um, so I wanted to know how much reading and literature has impacted found... on the songs that you write and just on your world in general. Well, as mentioned, I left school at 14 to work in a factory. I hated the education I got. And, okay, I didn't like school, however... I didn't mind reading. And so I guess as a reaction to my rejection of education, I just read books. I don't know why. You know, some people like books. I was one of those sort of people that just was a bit booky. Sorry. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which given the neighbourhood I, I was in and I'm it's sounding all very Dickensian in my head as I describe it, which is, I'm sure, not true. Reading always seemed to be quite natural to me. It does seem unusual to me, like the ballroom scene, for instance. You know, Nick Cave, all of those people. They are all really literary, you know. Sometimes to the point of painful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah. I I did I did it I did it with with the bad seeds ones. They're fine pop group and all that, and just a barrel of laughs, I guess. They're, they're kind of like some sort of Presbyterian cult. On the tour bus, I used to laugh to myself because there, there seemed to be like a competition of who could actually have the biggest book open in the tour bus that seemed to be the most studious. And I, I used to find that amusing. So, so maybe to other people, I, I was similar, always kind of <laughs> book bound. <laughs> what incarnation of the Bad Seas was that? In the early 2000s. Okay. Because I'd done some vocals for them and then consequently joined them on a trip around the world. Oh, did you? Which, Was that when you did that crazy film clip? Uh, just, yeah. What's it called? <laughs> oh, fuck, fuck, who knows? Oh, bring it on. But hardly the, the finest hour of Mr. Cave or all myself. They were really nice girls. Oh, but I, I still To this day, I still don't quite get it. On many levels, I don't get it. Nick and I are very different people, and to put us on stools seemed very cruel, <laughs> a very stupid thing to do. And then to <laughs> surround us with women 
of color shaking their bottoms on the screen. I, as a, I still can't work it out as a concept. Uh, and maybe that's its beauty. There is no concept. Yeah. Um, it's very Dada. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, I can't work out. it out. I've actually have been thinking about it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there is any working out. Yeah. I, I think it may well have been as simple as the original dancers didn't make it. Because these girls, even though they're, they're really, really good, I don't think they are professional dancers. I think they were the hairdressers' friends that were just gathered up at the last minute. And so from that point of view, they were very professional. I'll give them that. Um, it just kind of detracts from I realised I hadn't ever listened to that song because I probably just sort of switched off once I watched the video for a second. I, I kind of turned off at the geranium part. I've never been that huge into horticulture. I'm sure it has great depth and meaning. I just kind of missed it. Once again, that could just be me. Um, <laughs> so your songs have been covered by people like Kurt Cobain did one apparently, but I don't think it's been released, mm-hmm. but, but also Bruce Springsteen, which is pretty amazing. So how important is that to you? Like someone like Well, uh, it's funny, going back, the many incarnations of the saints, and I know that I'm largely responsible for that. And I'm not apologetic about that. That's the way it should have been. After Ed and Iva parted company, and there are millions of stories about that, and you can believe any of them as you will. But the the simple truth was, I dropped the contract, management dropped us. We kind of got dropped in the middle of London. And the reality was, you stay here or you don't. And as I've never had Australian citizenship, it was pretty easy for me just to continue living in London. It was hard financially, but I I consider that my down and out in London and Paris phase where I actually didn't care. I didn't care that I had no money. I didn't care that I slept in parks. It just didn't seem to matter because you have that stamina of youth where privations kind of wash off you a little bit. I have memories from those days that I wouldn't trade for any amount of cash. And whilst I'm very fond of the early saints and the fabulousness of how all of that happened, the miracle of being dragged out of Brisbane, the story really started when I had to make the decision of, well, I'm here in London, I have no cash, do you want to be in a rock band? Yeah, I think I do. What are you going to call it? Oh, it might as well be the Saints. Because, in fact, I had this conversation with Ed and with Ivor that I would always be the bloke that sang in the Saints. I had no notion of going solo or anything like that. And I'd already met new players. And it's funny, in, in hindsight, that, that to me is as exciting as all this stuff I've been describing about Brisbane. In fact, it's more exciting. And that's where the independent saints really started for me, the making the French connection, and then sort of it was almost like starting over. 
and it was very exciting. I mean, playing a gig in Paris was a little bit more interesting than playing a gig in Brisbane. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds snotty, but it's just true. There are lots of lovely things about Brisbane, as I've explained, but it's not. Uh, oh, don't see those very often around these parts. Well, uh, I think it was a fire truck or an ambulance or something. Oh. It was something with a siren and the distance just passed by, which sounds very Bruce Springsteen, and that's what we were describing. <laughs> Um, I do get off on tangents. I do apologize. Oh, I think you. So I guess it is quite lucky that I do feel fortunate in some respects, even though the Saints at, at any point that we've never really been hugely successful rock stars. There have been little moments in, over the years of little glimpses of fame. And it's been enough for me to, just to keep the whole thing alive and to keep the momentum and to keep it going. Because even back in the, the early days, we never played rural places, but it, even when we'd been on Countdown, if you went to play in the outer suburbs of somewhere in Oz, if you'd had a song on television, you, you would be playing to an audience that would be waiting for you to get off stage because they were waiting for the disco to start. And if you'd had a song on television, there'd be a reaction, a positive reaction to that. But then everything else in your set would be totally ignored. Why did that memory just pop into my head? Because it's true. It's true. That yeah. pop music and some people, it's just a commodity. I, I guess it's something that you do on the weekend. It's it's not really that important. It's funny to me. It's been my passion and my obsession at times for my whole life. And I, I'm aware enough to know that to other people. It's just this meaningless thing that I do or how interesting it is to be on YouTube because that's the new marker of fame. It's weird, but it becomes a meaningless pursuit, which really shocked me because I, I take music rather seriously and I find it very moving. And I think a world without music would be a, a horror zone. And yet to other people, it just... It, doesn't matter it's just not that important weird yeah that's weird, really shocking. that's like if i if i meet someone who doesn't read books i just can't comprehend it really it's it's it's, it's the same thing yeah it is weird <laughs> i don't i can't explain it and one shouldn't feel arrogant but one finds it very hard to resist yeah oh you've dedicated Funny your old. whole life to it <laughs> Well, funny enough, yes, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing now that I'm reflecting on it, but I wouldn't trade it, damn it. I For think all... if you didn't have an audience, would you still be dedicating your life to it? Like how much is it about I, getting I've people discussed, listening I, or is it just about you wanting you doing it? 
I think it's the doing. Mm-hmm. It's really funny. I have a friend who's one of my favorite, favorite long-term roadies, we used to call these people, technicians of the road or roadies. And, and he makes his own CDs. And he, he presses up a couple of hundred and gives them away in the vain hope of getting a contract. But, I mean, the pop music world is more full of horror now than it was when I was a callow youth. It's unrecognisable to me. It's all, all of the fizz and the joy of what used to be there seems to have gone out of it. Soulless. Do I blame television talent shows for this? I don't know. It's been demeaned in some sort of way because it's become a commodity. And on one level, I've benefited from this because it's paid my rent for 40 years and I should be grateful for that. Yet on the other hand, it's kind of cheapened what I think is very important, which is the pursuit of some kind of real ambient, meaningful, sonic expression of what it's like to be an ape in the modern world. Uh, I know. I'll wrestle with this later on a Saturday when I can have a drink. You've got a lot of wrestling. <laughs> You've got a lot of wrestling to do this afternoon. Well, and, and why not? I guess that's the point. Because my chosen art form is rock and roll. And I know that it's pretty lightweight. However, in there's something sonically quite heavy about rock music, which I quite like. And I've never thought that rock music necessarily needed to be that dumb. Whatever you're saying about I'm Stranded, we are still talking about it now, over 40 years later. That is remarkable, I suppose, to some extent. Once again, one should be careful here. There are other people's views of that and the experience of that tune and all of the stuff that's been hung upon it that obviously I can't know and I can't be a part of because for me, it's personal. It's part of mine. It's part of me. And so, therefore, I'm going to have a very different view to someone who, who is not a part of the, the process that made it. Why, mm. did, why didn't you have yeah. Australian citizenship? I, I don't know. It's, I don't think my parents ever took it out, A. And when I started to travel, I didn't get an Australian passport because I thought that a European passport would make more sense I have an Irish passport, and on that passport, I had a residency stamp, which allowed me to live in Oz, provided I came back within two years, I think was the rule. And at one point in the 90s, I stayed away for more than two years. And I remember going into the Australian embassy in Copenhagen, it was, and saying, can I renew this residency stamp? And the woman said, sorry, mate, you've blown it. You've overstayed the amount of time you cannot be in Australia. And so you've lost your residency rights. I've never then really thought to inquire as to whether I could ever get them back. I don't know. 
seems an incredible thing, though, after you've grown up somewhere. It does seem like an incredible thing. And I've just never asked anyone, actually, because since it happened in the 90s, the likelihood of me living in Australia seemed remote. And so it just was one of those things in life that doesn't seem important. And you Mm -hmm. keep kicking the can down the road. So now, given my age, I'm probably not eligible (laughs) to, to, to live in Oz. Uh, which is a bit tragic when you consider that I'm supposed to be an Aussie. My headphones just fell off oh. in answer to your question. <laughs> I think it's going back to my own dilemma. It's odd that I can't live in Oz. That's a weird thing. And I've got a mural and everything. <laughs> and I and still can't to get see it. it. <laughs> yeah, let me see my mural. I miss my Muriel. <laughs> anyway, you got the laughs. They should have a Muriel mural. That's what they should have in Brisbane, I reckon. That would suit Brisbane. Yes. It's been a long time since I've seen that film, actually. I watched it again recently and I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I thought it was really sad to Yeah, recall. it's really, really ho- horribly dark. And I hadn't remembered any of that. Yeah, I mean, all the ABBA stuff I find uh, a bit boring. But the family stuff in Pauper's Spit or whatever it is reminds me very much of growing up. I mean, it kind of captures what I think Queensland had. It was very sunny and bright, but uh, had this very dark uh, underbelly. And yeah, yeah, it's really. You, good. I you really know, good. the one thing that always annoyed me about Oz and my experience of growing up in Oz, the, the whole like notion of egalitarianism that's propagated, it was very obvious to me as a youth that the, Australia, despite the accent, was in fact a, a class society, and there were barriers and it wasn't we're all in it together mates there was a class structure in Australia but it was a bit more insidious because of the whole Anzac notion of everyone is equal that film just reminds me how difficult it was in those kind of hot summers when just things weren't right the scene I'm thinking of is the husband has an affair or something and that the domestic situation crumbles and it, the wife and the, there's a daughter that is tortured, basically. Mm. It's very sad. And they're just typical working class people. It's yeah. Uh, horrible. Yeah. yeah oh, must watch it again. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to your friend Chris Burnham and he was... Good Lord. He said he wanted me to mention that you had gone on Donnie Sutherland together. Yes. And you had pretended to be, hang on, I'm I'm reading my notes out. You had pretended to be two colonels from the British Raj. Yes. (laughs) He wanted me to talk about that with you. And um, I don't and to to, uh, you know ask why you used to pretend to be two colonels from the British Raj. 
In fact, that is a really good question. I have absolutely no idea why one would pretend to be dodgy old gin kernels. I, I, I don't know. Was it something in Chris Burnham that brought that out in me? Very possibly. Chris is an impossibly good looking man who to this day remains impossibly good looking. I don't know. Really? What, I'll have to go and look him up. <laughs> I don't know what demon he's done a deal with to, you know, what Dorian Gray thing he's got happening, but I honestly don't know. <laughs> I used to do it when you were being interviewed or did it just happen? Yeah, at the time? it did happen. It, and it does still occasionally happen. I found another clip with you with Donnie Sutherland. And also Chris told me all about Donnie Sutherland, so that was really entertaining. And it's actually a really beautiful clip because David is, you're being interviewed together. David is trying to be really, really serious. And then you are putting on an accent and everything. But it's very funny to watch. Yeah, I can't imagine me and David, who was quite a fragile fellow, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, he's beautiful in this clip. He's just being so uh-huh. honest to the questions. And they're obviously not, yeah, not very giving earnest. the answers that Donnie is expecting, you know. Mm. Yeah. It's weird. I never knew Donnie Sutherland terribly well, but I always thought it was really odd that I was a rock singer because if you walked into a room, there are a bunch of fellows. I would be the last fellow I would pick to be uh, a rock singer. There's nothing in my character that would indicate that that's what I should do. And to a funny extent, that's what I felt about Donnie Sutherland. I've met lots of plastic TV people and they're a strange lot by and large because it's a weird kind of profession. It has touches of glamour and stuff, but it's actually quite, quite desperate. And Donnie was a bit of a drinker in the brief times that I knew him. And, you know, I'm partial to a pint, as they say, but he just seemed wrong. And that's what I found kind of interesting about him. Oh, Chris I mean, had I hysterics because Chris was saying that, um, which made total sense when I went back and watched because I always thought, yeah, he was really odd to watch, really uncomfortable, mm. awkward. But Chris said yeah. that whatever questions he had on his clipboard, he couldn't deviate from them. And I can no. relate to this, right? So he'd ask the question and it wouldn't matter what you said back because he wasn't listening because he was just going on to the next question that he had on his board. Yes. <laughs> Yes, there is. So it's that. almost like he didn't even notice that you guys would be do- doing the Raj thing. It's funny you mention this because I haven't thought about this for years. But I, I remember thinking it was odd that, that Donnie liked me because he, he seemed to like me. And I thought, there's something wrong in this picture because I'm very just irreverent. I'm not taking this terribly seriously and I'm not telling the truth. Because that's always been my position when I did PR, that, you know, it's pretty obvious I'm here not to save the whales or to save rainforests. I'm here because I want you to, you know, buy my my product, make me rich. That's why I'm doing this shit, um, to pretending anything else is kind of a bit... Uh, What's the word for being full of fallacy? Is it fallacious? 
Can one say that? Fallacious. Yes. I th- well, yes, I think. Well, well <laughs> I mean, it's got a kind of naughty sound to it. Exactly. So. exactly. I'm not quite sure. There's, yeah, there's another. It was me it. being fallacious. <laughs> uh, um, which Donnie probably, <laughs> would have probably liked. But Bruce Springsteen would probably fall into the same category of folk I've met that I'm very surprised I've met. And I would think, well, gee, I should be surprised at that. But then it, it's funny how ordinary it gets. And that's really weird because with Bruce Springsteen, if I think even when I was a kid, he was really famous and someone that I should actually look up to, whereas I've never been like a massive fan, particularly. I, I think he's very talented and he's very good. And in fact, it, it's there's a conversation I had with him once, which is about, I was always a bit envious of people like him because they are people of place. Like he's very obviously American, New Jersey, and his music resonates that. And even Edmund, to a funny point, someone that I've worked with years ago, even though I don't think Stranded is particularly locked into being Brisbane, Ed has a certain quality that kind of marks him as coming from Queensland. He's got that sound. There's something about what he does is kind of of place. And and this is a compliment. And I've always felt that I haven't had that. And it's given my music a different flavor that's a little uncomfortable because I really don't know where it's from because I really don't know where I'm from, which is, I guess, the reason why I still feel very out of place. We've been talking for a really long time. I have a bottle of HP sauce in front of the time clock on this computer. One hour and 39 minutes. Shit. (laughs) All glad to be of service. Well, good luck with it. And, oh, I've moved my mouse and now I can leave. All right. Excellent. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 Like a snake calling on the phone. I got no time to be alone. There's someone coming at me all the time.
Don't know how it hurts to be 
Our version of I'm Stranded features the incredible Penny Eichinger on vocals and guitar and was recorded and produced by Richard Andrew at Pharmacy Studios. Penny has also done a video clip for Stranded with Rob Wellington and RMIT students. You can check it out on YouTube. For the original version of the song, search out The Saints. The Almost a Mirror podcast is written and produced by me, Kirsten Crow, with sound design and mixing by Jed Palmer. This podcast is supported by the Donald Horn Creative and Cultural Fellowship from the University of Canberra. The theme song is written by Michael Simic and produced by Michael Mooney, with vocals by La Trouble, aka Michael Mooney, and Kay Proudlove. If you'd like to listen to any of the songs featured in this podcast, head to Almost a Mirror on Bandcamp to download them and support local musicians who are really doing it tough right now. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I look forward to your company next time. Bye.